You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. As an actor, it is rare to have long stretches of employment, especially in theater. Now, television actors can certainly be a part of a successful show for years on end. Same goes for movie franchises, where roles can come back film after film. But for most of us, it is simply job to job. One show ends, and we work really hard to book the next one. For Stephen Warner, he had just done the biggest role in his life at the age of seven. So what was next for him? In part two of our conversation, we explore the years after The Little Prince and how Stephen's life and career took a dramatic turn. It's a story of persistence and tenacity, but also a recognition of the realities we face as actors and how it's as much a personal journey as it is an artistic one. So many people want to be actors and singers. I just sometimes think to myself, my God, you know, out of all of the people that auditioned for that, they chose me. Why? Welcome back to another episode of Why I'll Never Make It, a top 25 theater podcast. I am your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, an actor and singer for almost 30 years. Each week, I talk with actors and creatives, sharing stories of personal struggles and professional hardships with lessons that we can all learn from. The website is whyillnevermakeit.com, where you can learn more about this podcast and contribute to its ongoing production, because I certainly wouldn't make it without you. Again, that's whyillnevermakeit.com, or just look for the link in the show notes. The previous episode was all about the 1974 film, The Little Prince, and showcased the collaboration between this podcast and the industry podcast hosted by Dan Delgado. Well, today it's just Stephen and myself talking about the years that followed that movie and the various paths that slowly led him back to film. Well, after The Little Prince, I didn't go back to stage school because I hated it. And then from then onwards, I kind of was more focused on school. And unfortunately, my mother became very, very ill and sadly passed away. And my focus shifted quite a bit because although it was always my idea to go into that kind of world, you know, I did have my mother behind me because she was a dancer herself. And she really discouraged me from doing it. And then until she realized that, okay, yes, this is actually what he wants to do, then she was like 100% behind me. Unfortunately, when I didn't have that adult behind me as well, pushing me and, you know, being there for me, it kind of didn't work for a while until I was a little bit older where I decided I was going to go and do something different, which I guess you know nothing about. <laughs> right, exactly. And, and, and what age was that um, of, of your mother's passing and you decided to do different uh, I things? was 15 then. Oh, very young. Oh, that's, that, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah. 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 It, it was tough. It was very, very tough. I imagine so. Because, you know, I remember 15, I was just kind of coming into my own self, figuring out who I was and what I wanted to be. Absolutely. And- 15 is a pretty crucial age. For, for any teenager, you are, as you quite rightly point out, 
coming to terms with lots of things, you finding out about yourself, what you are, where you want to go, things you want to do, things you don't want to do. And at that point, I thought, I, I don't really know what it is that I want to do. And I, I went to see an ice show in London. My mum was very, very ill uh, because she always used to take me and my sister when we were smaller. Every year she takes along to Wembley Arena to see the big ice show that came around Christmas time. The show was on. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. It's called Holiday on Ice. And, and I said to my mum, I'd really like to go. And she said, well, go and see it. And I said, would you like to go? And she said, I can't. I'm not well enough to go. I can't sit in a cold building, you know. I said, I'll, I'll look after you. She was like, no. She said, you go and tell me all about it. I said, okay. So I went to see it and I was absolutely transfixed with it. And I was sat there and that five-year-old me on the inside went, I want to do that. That's what I want to do. Now, I could actually ice skate a little bit because... When I was growing up, after I'd left the stage school, um, I did still like dancing. So I used to go on a Saturday and have dance lessons, as my sister did as well. And, and my mum insisted that both of us do something else as well. And she said, you know, she goes, she goes, I don't care what it is. She goes, you've got to have a hobby that will give you something. And so we both decided that ice skating was kind of nice. So we could both ice skate a little bit. And we used to go ice skating on a Saturday afternoon, just for a couple of hours, just enough. And I found I had a good aptitude for it. So I picked things up fairly quickly. Um, My mum ended up getting a job at the ice rink. So during any holidays from school, I used to go with her to work. I used to skate all day. And so when I was 15 and I saw this show, I was like, that's what I want to do. So I found out the address of the the company where they were based, which was in Amsterdam. I was like, God, you know, but they had a London office. So I called that. I got myself an audition and I show that tours like that would never even entertain anyone at the age of 15. So I had to stretch the truth a little bit. And so they said, look, you're way too young. So we, we can't audition you. He said, you know, he said, you're just a little kid. And I went, I'm nearly 16 ish. And they said, look, you're, you're too young. They said, come back and see us in four years. I was like, four years? That's like forever. They were like, okay. They said, I said, right, okay, we will audition. So I talked them into letting me get on the ice and audition. So they auditioned me and they said, okay. They said, the problem is you're just not tall enough. You're not strong enough. You've got to be able to lift the women in the show. And you're just not strong enough for that. Give it a couple of years and come back. I was just like, okay, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll wait a few years. And I went back. The next year, straight away, auditioned again. And I had really worked hard that year on my skating. And my skating was good enough. Um, I had grown a little bit. Um, so I was just, just about tall enough. And they were like, yeah, okay, we've got a place in the show. And I was like, brilliant. I was 16 then. And they said, okay, they said, we can't take you on in the UK because you need to be 18 for this. And um, they said, the show is going to Scandinavia. Sweden and they tried to get me a visa for that which they couldn't get the visa in time so uh, I didn't go so the following year when the show came back to London I was there straight away pestering them and uh, yeah I, I got a place in the show and it was only supposed to be whilst the show was in London for 10 weeks and they had a spot for one guy after like to go on tour and that was given to me 
obviously based on my work throughout the run in London. So I thought, yeah, no, I thought I, I earned that. There was another guy that was there, six foot one, very handsome guy, you know, very strong skater, but he was lazy. So Stephen signed two four-year contracts with Holiday on Ice, touring around Europe with elaborate costumes and firework fountains and its famous spinning wheel, where skaters link arms with one another and spin around a center point. Now, although he left his second contract about six months before it was set to end, Stephen performed in many different productions during his seven years with the company, including Sleeping Beauty, Journey Through Time, and Around the World in 80 Days. But that was something I was very proud of. And I made some wonderful friends, and I am still friends with them to this day. They are going to be lifelong friends uh, because we were very much a family. We were on tour together. And so when you work with people at very close quarters, you become a family. You know, we really were a family. And in the group, there was about 85 of us on tour. And so, I mean, like, yeah, there are there were one or two people in the group that I really didn't care for that much. Um, but the vast majority of them, they were not only my colleagues, but they were very good friends. And we all looked after each other. Even the ones we didn't like, we looked out for them. Um, and I was very lucky enough to skate with a few Olympic champions in the show. It's part of my life that I'm very, very proud of. That a lot of people um, have absolutely no idea that I, I did that. There is also an interesting connection between his years of ice skating and The Little Prince. It was actually while in New York City in November of 1974 that he appeared at Radio City Music Hall to promote the opening of the film. Now, this appearance was actually communicated very last minute, and so Stephen and his parents had to rush quickly to change plans in order to be there at Radio City. But Stephen's mother made sure that they still found time to enjoy themselves. The first time I ever ice skated was in between the two shows at Radio City. That's the first time I ever went on the ice. I actually have got myself on film skating for the first time ever. And I'm actually wearing Lil Prince outfit, but without the coat. You can actually see the white suit underneath. I've got like trousers and a jet sweater over the top, but you can see the white suit underneath. And I've got the wig on and everything. And the people from Radio City and Paramount was like, no way. He cannot go ice skating. No. And my mom said, excuse me. He is a normal kid. Today is supposed to be our day off, and you guys put this on him. She said, no, I've promised him that he can do anything that all normal kids do. And she said, so for me to keep that promise, I told him he could go ice skating. And they were like, we can't allow this in case he falls and he's got another show to do. So she said, well, he'll do it with his arm in a sling. She said, you know, that, that's, that's how it is. So they paid two instructors to basically hold me up so that I could not fall and hurt myself. Uh, but they did eventually let me go. And I did fall over uh, quite a few times. I loved it. Absolutely loved it. And that's such an iconic place as well. It's been in, I don't know how many movies. And I did actually end up skating for Holiday on Ice. And the parent company was Madison Square Garden Bookings, you know, which is nuts.
So I was reading that you eventually went into the airline business. That's right, yeah. When did that transition happen? Uh, around 1990, uh, because when I was on this, the main reason why I left the ice show, because I, I tried to get money together to, to buy a property in the UK. You can't do it unless you're working in the UK. If you're on tour, it, it just doesn't work. You can't get a mortgage that way. So I was like, oh, I might have to rethink this one. So we were getting ready to go on tour to some far off destination. I can't remember where. And I was sitting in economy down the back of a 747. I don't know where we were going. And we were flying with KLM. I remember it very clearly. All the rest of the cast and crew from the show, they were all asleep. I was the only one awake. And I sat there and I, and I had a piece of paper and I was writing down, you know, things I could do, things I liked, things I didn't like. And I thought, right, you know, I need to find something else to do. And I thought, well, I thought, there's no point writing actor or dance or anything like that because I know how precarious that job is. You know, and it's, it's just not stable. And I thought, there's no way that I'm going to be able to get a mortgage based on that. So I, I just decided, you know, because I was watching the crew and they, they seemed to be having a really good time. So and I was asking them about it, saying, you know, do you, do you like your job? You know, and, and I was just asking them about it. And I thought, I could do that. You know, I could do that. And I thought, I tell you what, I thought, I'll leave the ice show. I'll go and get a job with an airline for a couple of years. It'll give me a base in the UK. I can still travel. I can do all that. And then I'll do it for a couple of years and I can figure out exactly what it is that I'm going to do. Well, that was 1990. So that was 31 years ago. And I'm still trying to figure out where else <laughs> what you want to do. <laughs> I can retire now if I want to, but I, I'm only going to give it a couple more years here and then I'm, I'm out of here. Throughout this interview, Stephen and I were constantly interrupted by loud noises, banging and fireworks going off in his neighborhood, all to celebrate Guy Fawkes Day. And although I did my best in editing, I, I couldn't remove all that loud banging that was going on outside his home. But one particularly loud interruption of fireworks actually led us into an intimate personal conversation that I hadn't expected. That's because in the midst of the recording, it, it was just too loud for us to continue the interview. So we took a break and instead talked about this interesting holiday, which commemorates a failed assassination attempt from over 400 years ago, when a group of radical English Catholics tried to assassinate King James I by blowing up Parliament's House of Lords. Because that's exactly what they did. They put explosives underneath the Houses of Parliament and tried to blow it up. Um, but the, the plot was foiled. So it's remember, remember the 5th of November. And then for a whole week afterwards, if you happen to be of Indian descent, um, which we have a lot of Asian people living in the UK, then they go into Diwali, which is the, um, what do they call it? The, Festival of Lights, I think it is. So there's a lot, lots of fireworks. Speaking of on cue. Right. On cue. <laughs> so, uh, but the only thing is that the animals, you know, if you've got cats and dogs, they're, they're absolutely petrified oh, for like sure. a week. You know, they, they just sort of sit there quaking in the corner. I mean, I don't have any animals, but uh, I'd love to. But I just think that they'd be so scared. Do you have a family now? It's just me and my my sister lives not too far away. Very nice. Were you ever married? No, nope. just never really happened. 
not met the right person. That's a little bit boring, I suppose, isn't it? <laughs> no, but but it does come down to that. I've met lots of right people, um, but I, you know, there's lots of people that are interested in me, but I've thought mm, I'm not really interested in you. Or the person has to be able to make me laugh, and they have to keep me very entertained. Yeah, and that's not a lot of people. No, and also as well, I think now you know because of my age, like most of the people. You know, of, of my age, that I would be attracted to. They're, they're they're all taken. True. Yeah. Yeah. They've they've found they found yeah. Because I was married to a woman once. I'm now married to a man. So I've kind of had my own relationships ups and downs as well. So yeah. I after that first divorce, I didn't think I would ever marry again. So this was kind of a surprise. You know, finding someone to to marry. And did again. you go actively looking for someone? I was actively looking to be with people, to be in relationships, either a casual or a serious, but I, I didn't think marriage was going to be there. So it was more just, uh, I like having someone there, but I also liked going home at night to my own place. You know, I, it's, it's got a lot of merit for me to sort of like say, when I speak to other people at work and they're going, oh my God, when I go home, I've got to do this, kids, oh, I've got to get them to school. They said, you know, who's at home for you? And I said, no one. I walk in, I said, I can do what I want. So if I want to walk around with one sock on and nothing else, I can do that. If I want to change the TV channel, I don't have to ask somebody, are you watching this? So if, you know, I can get up when I want, I can go to bed when I want, I can eat what I want. I don't have to ask anything. I said, that's great. However, there is the flip side of that. Is that like sometimes you think I want to go home and there's going to be someone there that go, hello, darling, have you had a nice day at work? Have you been shit? Why don't you just go and have a little sleep for a couple of hours, bring you a cup of tea, you know, wake you up later. But in reality, it's not always like that. They're like, what the bloody time? Did you late again? I was supposed to be going to see my parents this weekend and you're driving. I said, I know it'd be like that. Right. Yeah. 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 Because for the longest time I wanted children, but now I know at this age, it's like, no. No, that's that's uh that's not in the cards for me. It's just not it's just not why not? You're young. No, it's it's just like when I was younger, I think I just had more of an idealistic impression of what having a child meant and how wonderful and cute they were. But as I've gotten older, now I know, oh my gosh, they can be hellions. And I just don't know that I would have the right temperament to deal with that. I, I feel like I'm patient a lot, but that just in other people's children, I, I kind of roll my eyes so many times, so I don't know that I could handle myself. Well, I don't know. I mean, like whenever I see some... TV programs when they've got uh, like troublesome children, I think would I would I deal with it like that? Would I do that? Would I say go to your room or would I go? Do you know what? That's fine. You know my house, my rules. Get out. You can't do that, can you? You know, I, I suppose if a child is a troublesome one, is that a reflection on the parents? Is it a reflection on the school teachers? I don't know. Um, it's a tough one. Yeah, yeah. There's a family that I grew up with in in the church back home, and they, I mean, loved them to death. And and there was one of their sons I got along with really well. I got along with both sons, but one son was like the good son, and he did everything right and and wonderful. The other one was a bit more of a troublemaker, always in trouble, detentions or schooling, or didn't want to go to school, didn't go to college. Was more just on his own path that the parents didn't really understand. So I mean. Even in the same household, two brothers can be completely different as far as what they want to do and how to raise them. And I, I bet he's turned out all right, though. 
Yeah, yeah, he's he's certainly certainly fine now and and lives his life, but uh, but yeah, but not exactly the life that his parents envisioned, for so to speak. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's like you know, we, like you look at anyone that they you have on the TV and I go, we're looking for this person. You know, he's murdered like fifteen people. Oh God, that's someone's son. You know, they're going to be thinking that, that that was my that's my son. They've done that. You know, be outside with a gun now. <laughs> In addition to the stories shared here, Stephen also answered the final five questions, which is now presented as part of the Win Me blog. He talks about his own definition of making it and what has inspired him most as an artist and creative. You can find the final five at whyillnevermakeit.com or just look for the link in the show notes. And now back to our conversation as Stephen shares his thoughts on returning to acting and the hurdles that stand in his way. Well, I, I kind of like to dip my toe back into the acting world if I can, but it's going to be difficult because nowadays I think anyone that's been born over the past 20 odd years, you know, because there's so many reality TV programs on, um, that they people seem to think, well, you don't need to learn how to do these things you could just turn up and if you can sing a song you you you've automatically you're going to get into everything so many people want to be actors and singers and i mean it was competitive when i was a kid um so it's going to be even more competitive now i suppose i, I have got a, quite a bit of experience behind me and quite a diverse quite a diverse experience as well for sure since i've been with british airways because they have actually got their amateur dramatic society, which of course I gravitated towards straight away. And I just thought, oh, it's going to be awful. It's going to be really tacky. It's going to be this. And it's not. It's actually very good. Uh, and I'm not saying that just because I'm part of it. It's they have actually won awards in the UK for best amateur production. Um, every year they do a family pantomime. Now, pantomime in the UK is probably very different to what you might think in the US. Uh, but it's take a good old-fashioned fairy tale and then add lots of humour that adults would take one way and children would take another way. Put a few songs in there as well. Um, make it a good night out and make it funny. And that's kind of it. And I've been doing that with, with the BA Entertainment Group for around 25 years now. And um, so it's just something I think, right, that's just a little something just to keep it ticking over in the background so I know what it's like being in the theatre so that, you know, and I have actually tried all the departments. I've done, I've had a go at producing, I've had a go at directing, uh, I've swept the stage, you know, um, I've, I've danced in the chorus line, I've had main parts, I've, I've, I've had a go at everything, you know, and um, throughout the whole pandemic, you know, um, I was furloughed from the airline and that was a word furlough that we didn't know in this country. No one knew what it meant, um, but I had heard the word before because it's something that American airlines do to their staff from time to time. You know, they will furlough people. And when they said that they were going to furlough us, I was like, oh God, I thought that means that, that, that's the end of my job at the airline. That's fine. But I'll, I'll go and find something else to do in the meantime. So I, 
just signed up with loads of agencies and I've been going and doing lots of background acting just to physically get back on a film set again mm -hmm. so I can actually see how things have changed now, how with the technology, because it's not the same as I remember it. You know, we, we didn't have steady cams. You know, we, we didn't have CGI. We didn't have all that kind of stuff when I was working on the little prints, you know, where the birds and everything were animated, you know, whereas now they wouldn't, they wouldn't waste time with that, you know. So I just kind of needed to see how things are done now. And um, the whole process seems to be a lot quicker, even though that they still go to great lengths to film like one sequence. Um, it's just that what would normally take a week, they would probably do in a day now. So it seems to be a lot quicker. Um, but there is, from what I can see, a lot more attention to detail, like minute detail, which I, I was like, wow, you know, don't recall that in the past. You know, when it was like, oh, that's fine, that, that won't show on camera, don't worry about that. You know, because everything's filmed in high definition, people can zoom in on things. See, so no, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. So we cannot have that in the background. That has got to be covered up. I mean, I literally did a day uh, on Thursday filming on a period drama for a Netflix, um, and it's a sequel film, to, and it's something to do with Sherlock Holmes, and it was in an old-time music hall from, like, Victorian era, like 1880s, that, that sort of thing. And when I actually walked on the set, and I, I looked at it and I thought, yeah, this is a theatre, an old-style theatre. I thought it would have been cheaper for them to actually go and film in a real theatre, you know. And I thought they would have had to rip all the seats out, take the carpets up, probably change the wallpaper. But yeah, it's probably cheaper just to build a theatre in a soundstage, which is what they did. I just thought, my God, the, the money that they seem to have to put into this now, it's astounding. I did another thing back in the summer for Apple TV, and um, the action is being filmed by people with a camera on their like, body cam, and they're filming the hijacking at the airport, and they're having to evacuate the building. And like we're watching the footage, and I was thinking, shit, this looks real. You know, and I'm like, duh. Yeah, because as much as they rely on CGI these days, they still want as much realism there as possible. Oh, yeah. It's been interesting, you know. So I thought, yeah, let's, let's do a little bit of this. I thought, nothing to do with money. I thought, I, it's just that I want to do something that's different, where every day I sit, you know, get on a different film set and actually have a little look, see how it works now, sort of like compare it a little thing to how it used to be. And, I mean, it is... I have to say that if you're a background actor, you're the lowest of the low on the set. I've, I've been there, yeah. And, and that's fine because I know exactly what it is that I'm going in, in for. You know, and other people have said to me, Stephen, you should tell them what you've done in the past. And I went, why? Why? It, it won't why matter. I, <laughs> I said, you know, I said, I'm not being brought in to do that. I'm not playing the prince. I'm playing man at, at back buying a newspaper or something. Yeah, I said, so what? I said, it's, it's no big deal. I don't care if they, if I'm in shot or not. I said, it's, that's not important to me. That's not why I'm doing it. So I'm doing it for the experience that I need to be back on a film set again. Do I like all this hanging around? Is, is this something where I think, should I give this a go again? You know, I see how they are with the main cast. And I, I've been watching that quite closely. Um, I'm like, yeah, they don't really have to learn their lines now. Not as much. 
I did. There's a, a very long speech in The Little Prince, I guess about halfway through, where I get quite upset and I start crying and I run off. I know one flower that's unique in all the world. It grows nowhere but on my planet. But some morning, a sheep can come along and destroy it with one single bite. And you think that's not important? I suppose so. What you don't understand is that if someone loves one flower that grows on one star, among all the millions and millions of stars in the sky, is enough to make him happy to look at the stars. He can say to himself, somewhere my flower's up there. But if a sheep eats the flower, in one moment all the stars will go dark. And you think that's not important? It's not a matter of consequence to you. That speech, I think when we were on take 34, I think I was probably losing the will to live. And they're like, no, we'll do it again. And they really wanted it in one take, like a continuous take. But I, I think they conceded that, you know, I was only six and that you weren't going to get it all in one goal. Because also as well, I had to contend with the sword to put it back in the scabbard in one go, which like without cutting my fingers off. And, and I, I remember learning that speech. And uh, me and my mum, we had a specific way of learning dialogue that my mum would be absolutely everybody else in the film and I would be me. And we would go through the lines. We'd just talk. Through. I mean, when I think about it, I was six and I was reading quite long words, you know, that I didn't really know what they meant. And every time I came up with a word, and I was like, well, what does that mean? You know, the, my mum would explain it to me. And then we'd eat a meal while we're talking about it. And then afterwards, when she was getting ready to put me to bed, we would just talk through the scene again. We'd go through the lines about three or four times. And then she said, right, we'll, we'll try it again now. And she'd record us doing the scene. And then I'd go to sleep and she'd play it to me about three or four times as I was going off to sleep. And when she'd wake me up in the morning, the first thing she'd do, she'd get right, and she'd like give me the cue line. And I would go through the scene without script. And pretty much it would sink in that way. But um, I never had, I think we call them dummy cards, you know, whether somebody holds card with the Oh yeah, the cue cards, yeah. Yeah, I never ever had that, ever. So has this time doing background work and watching the filming process again, has it made you think, okay, I, I want to get back to doing this again, I'm ready for it? Yeah, I, I wouldn't mind. Confidence isn't really the, the right sort of word, but I, I don't think I would like to, to step in and, and take on a title role like that because there is so much that it basically rests on one person. But if you screw it up big time, you know, that's it. You're finished. You're done. You know, nobody will hire you again. Um, so I just think, yeah, I'd actually like to have a nice little supporting role somewhere. You know, don't really say that much. You know, it'd be nice actually if I don't die. It'd be nice if I don't get born. It'd be nice. You know, because like nearly everything that I've done, I, I seem to get killed or die or something, you know, have some, something befall me. But I would love to be in one of the Star Wars. There's a guy who lives next door to my sister. He was in the first three Star Wars films. And like he said, I said, go on, pull some strings for me. I said, I want to be a stormtrooper. And he always laughs. He said, you're not tall enough to be a stormtrooper. He said, they're really tall. And I went, yeah, I can stand on a block. You know, I said, I don't mind. He said that all of those guys, he said, 
said, you know, the rebels and storm. He said, they're really tall. He said, the ones that are not so tall, he said, they're always at the back. He said, so that they get the really tall ones at the front. He said, so it looks like a perspective thing. He said, they get them in a height line. He said, so you, you never spot yourself. And I went, yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the thing that, I'm, that I have learned, and actually it's probably cemented it really home with me now doing some background work, is that, you know, be very careful who you talk to, you know, because you don't know who those people are. Um, you know, you need to be nice to everyone because everybody has something to bring to the production, regardless of who they are. And, you know, I see the way that some people get treated and I just think, you want to be careful, that person, they could be related to somebody else higher up the food chain than you, you know, that could be a distant relative of the, the head of the studio or something. Yeah, it's the same in stage work. Yeah, you never know if that lowly casting director or assistant will five years from now be the director of a main stage show. So oh, yes. you just never know. Yeah, so, so if you're vile and being an absolute, that word that we don't use, um, to somebody, you know, just because you can, and then, like, as you say, at five years' time, they'll have the pleasure of sitting there, walk you into a, a casting suite and say, oh, hi, would you like to read that? In fact, you know what? Don't even bother because I'm not going to give you a job because the way you spoke to me, I remember you. Thanks. Shut the door on the way out. But I was given a, a good piece of advice by one of the producers of Holiday on Ice because I, I said to her, I said, oh, you know, I don't know how to do this. And so she said, darling, she said, you don't take no for an answer in this industry. She said, you push yourself to the front without being a pest. She said, you know, because you have to make sure that they remember your name for the right reason, not for the wrong. And she said, but you don't take no for an answer. And I said, yeah, but that's like being pushy. So she said, well, she said, you don't think people like Madonna got to where she is without being a little bit pushy. Yeah, it is about finding that balance. Yeah. Because I'm the same way. Like I've worked with some big time stars. And I never want to feel like I'm using them or I'm stepping on that or that, you know, just like you, you didn't want to like boast about yourself. It's like, well, what does it matter that I did this? So I, I sometimes am not as forthright as I could be to a fault rather than, you know, finding that balance of being proud of what you've done and just letting that stand for itself. It, it's a very tough one. And I think in my case, the thing that people best know me for was a very long time ago. You know, the, the other things that I've done more recently um, that people wouldn't know me for. It's, it's a difficult one for me. Um, but, you know, hey, it's a challenge. I've, I've stepped in many directions throughout my life, you know, and I, I don't doubt for one minute that I'll, I'll step in a different direction again at some point, you know. But as, a, as I said earlier, you know, I don't want to be defined just for that one role. I mean, it is something that I'm, I'm immensely proud of, you know, and and I, I just sometimes think to myself, my God, you know, out of all of the people that auditioned for that, they chose me. Why? You know, because I almost told them that I didn't want to do it, you know, and, and I didn't seem excited about it. I, I, I wasn't keen, you know, and I just seemed like grumpy, but they chose me. I think I did an okay job with it. You know, they, they seem to be all right, but they, you know, I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I think they were happy in the end. Yeah, I think they got what they wanted. Yeah. I think so. 
Thank you so much for joining Stephen and myself today, and of course to Dan Delgado for introducing us. I hope you check out the episodes we did together on The Little Prince, and make sure to subscribe to his podcast as well. It really is a great behind-the-scenes look at the movie industry. I'd also like to take a moment to thank Helen, who became a recent follower on Instagram. She messaged me and said, Thank you so much for creating this podcast. I'm about to graduate, make the big move to NYC, and listening to your podcast is really helping me keep my spirits up and stay inspired amidst all this self-taping and chaos of transitioning to the real world. (laughs) Well, I'm so grateful that you reached out to me and that this podcast has been a resource for you as you approach the starting line of your career here in New York. Oh, I agree that self-tapes and this city itself present their own challenges, and I hope that this podcast will continue to be a support for you in connecting with and receiving insights from fellow creatives. Now, you too can follow Why I'll Never Make It on Instagram at Podcast. It'll remind you of episodes as they come up, as well as provide thoughts, inspirations, and resources throughout the week. Well, as always, I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, in charge of writing, editing, and producing this podcast. Background music is by Blue Dot Sessions and John Bartman. Why I'll Never Make It is a part of the Helium Radio Network and a member of the Broadway Makers Alliance. Coming up next week is yet another little prince, Anthony Rapp, who was part of a failed Broadway production back in 1982. So be sure to join me next time as we talk more about why I'll never make it. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.